Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast, where we address topics relevant to today's consumers and farmers. I'm Preston Schrader. And I'm Jason Carr. Preston and I are Technology Development Reps, or TDRs, for Bear Crop Science. As TDRs, our primary mission is to help solve agronomic challenges that farmers face and to understand how to best utilize the bear suite of products, including traits, genetics, crop protection, as well as digital tools, to create solutions that are tailored to each grower's unique farm. We have a couple goals with this podcast, the first being to help farmers across the country to address challenges that they face throughout the growing season while introducing them to game-changing technology that has the potential to radically benefit their farming practices. We also want to provide the consumers of ag commodities who are not necessarily involved in agriculture with information about the practices farmers engage in and the reasons behind them, hopefully provide a greater level of understanding and comfort with how their food is produced. Today we'd like to discuss the importance of pollinators to agriculture. We'd like to discuss the challenges that are facing those pollinators and the impact of modern ag practices on their survival. Um, Personally, I've been a beekeeper for for quite some time and I'm also involved in production agriculture um, in a research capacity. And this is a topic that's really important to me personally. A lot of the time I feel like I see conflict between beekeepers and row crop farmers. Um, I'm not sure, you know, sometimes it's real conflict, sometimes it's imagined conflict, sometimes maybe there's even somebody with a, with kind of a agenda that, um, you know, for whatever reason they want to kind of maintain that conflict. But um, at the root of it all, beekeeping really is part of agriculture, and beekeeping and, and agriculture are mutually dependent, mutually beneficial to one another. So to help us understand this topic in greater detail, we've got a very special guest today. He's a respected expert with many years of experience in the field of beekeeping and author of a popular question and answer column in the American Bee Journal. Jerry Hayes is Vice President North America with Vita Bee Health. Uh, Jerry, did I say that right? Thanks for joining us. Um, First of all, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and your current position? Yeah, no. Thank you uh, so much for inviting me to uh, to uh, yeah visit visit with you guys. Um, and uh, yes, it's, it could be Vita, it could be Vito, it could be Vita, uh, and so whatever you like, you just pick out whichever one you want. Um, I have uh, been in the beekeeping industry for a very long time, and <clears throat> to give you the the Jerry story. I started out in life as a high school teacher and didn't like it for a variety of different reasons. And so went into another business and <clears throat> was able to work with a guy who was a beekeeper. And this was a, a long time ago. And, and I thought, well, this is very cool. Everybody knows about honeybees, but nobody actually knows a beekeeper. And so, uh, you know, asked some questions and became more interested and more questions and the interest grew and and uh, started reading things. And that's when, uh, you know, passion kind of opened the door and uh, started doing things. And I, I turned into the consummate backyard beekeeper. I did all those crazy things backyard beekeepers do. And I made equipment and stuff and junk and uh was just enthralled with this insect and its connection to the environment. It was just seemed to be invited into an insect's world like this. And uh, so after a while, 
I thought, uh, could somebody actually make a living doing this and, and take care of a family? And uh, at the time, uh, there was uh, an apiculture, a honeybee program offered at Ohio State University. It had a very patient wife, and uh, uh, we decided I could go back to school and, and learn some more about that. And that was probably the, the best thing I did. I was uh, under the tutelage of Dr. Jim Tu uh, there, who uh, was just phenomenal in, in helping my passion grow. Um, and so we did all sorts of things there, and I learned all sorts of things. And from there, I went to the USDA Bee Breeding and Stock Lab in Baton Rouge for a little while, and then uh, up the road to Hamilton, Illinois, where I worked for Daydent and Sons, the country's largest manufacturer and supplier of beekeeping. Uh, and then uh, to Florida, where I was the chief of the apiary section for the Florida Department of Agriculture. And then uh, uh, for a few years, I was with Monsanto as a honeybee health lead, looking at a, a, uh, a new technology, if you will, RNAi, that we were hoping to uh, integrate into honeybee health uh, and uh, get away from some chemical treatments. And then from there, I, I transitioned to uh, Vita uh, Bee Health. Uh, to they have some natural or close to natural products uh, that uh, I thought could be useful in the industry, and now I'm talking to you guys, so this is great. That's a really interesting career. Uh, you know how things change so much from starting off as a teacher. It's kind of interesting. You know, we probably a lot of people have that kind of story where they started off thinking they wanted to do one thing, and over the course of their career, it really evolved into something that they were passionate about as, I mean, obviously this is something that you're really passionate about. Um, no, no, it really is. And I, and I kind of pinch myself almost every morning to think um, about being in the industry, having this, this uh, opportunity to learn about this insect. Cause anybody who says they know everything about honeybees is a liar. Nobody does uh, because of their diversity. Uh, and then I've been able to, do a tremendous amount of things and travel the world and write stuff and all because of honeybees i mean this is just yeah i just get goosebumps every time i think about it <laughs> yeah i think i can i can uh, agree with you that the more you learn the more fascinating they are i mean it's it's yeah. something you can never learn enough about if it's something you're interested in yeah absolutely so, Jerry, we know that we depend on both wild and managed pollinators for many of the foods that we enjoy today. Um, and I've seen some statistics before, you know, but can you tell us how important pollinators are to agriculture? Um, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and I, I hesitated there for a moment because I'm asked this question a lot, and then I, I always ask myself, um, you know, how come we have done a better job of educational outreach in teaching people or, or making them aware of, of this information? And, and so we're, we're talking about, you know, for the ultimate consumer, we're talking about approximately a, a third of all the food we eat, um, pollinators, especially managed honeybees, are responsible for. And, and if you go into your favorite uh, grocery store, uh, big box, uh, you know, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, what have you, you know what? You when you walk into the store, you don't walk into the aisle with the toilet paper 
or the cleaning supplies, do you? That you always walk into the produce section because that's where um, visual uh, connection and color and, and smell um, and nutrition uh, starts off. And most of those fruits and vegetables and nuts have to have uh, pollination. This, this transfer of pollen, which is the male element, from uh, one flower part to another flower part, and 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 you know, tell me when to be quiet here. But you know, basically, we have two different kinds of <coughs> pollination. Uh, plants want to be genetically diverse; they want to su survive, uh, but they have to reproduce. They have to produce a seed, and so we have wind-pollinated plants that were probably the first plants that produced a lot, a lot of pollen. And, and when it was ready, it was released into the air uh, to float around and the wind blow it. And let's cross our, our fingers, let's cross our branches and hope that pollen lands on the right flower part so that I can make a, a seed if I'm a pine tree and, uh, and a pine cone. And we've probably all seen that or, yeah, I've seen it, you know, this spring uh, when you have these wind pollinated plants and pines releasing the pollen and in the morning your car is covered with a, uh, a film of, of pollen. Well, there was a, a group of plants that said, you know what, this is kind of arbitrary and capricious just to make a whole bunch of pollen and throw it into the air. Let's see if we can be a little bit more targeted and, and focused um, if we can, but I'm a plant. I can't pull myself out of the ground walk over and have sex with that plant on the other side of the field. <laughs> I can't do it. So how about if I figure out how to have a relationship with an insect, a honeybee, that I'll give that honeybee maybe some nectar, some sweet sugary liquid, um, and uh, I'll, I'll uh, have them take some of my pollen that they're collecting for their used to over to that flower on the other side of the field and have that pollen get to the right flower part so I can produce a seed and I can I can reproduce <clears throat> and we're talking about two different species here we're talking about plants a species and then we're talking about insects a species and they figured out how to cooperate to coordinate uh, activities how to partner we're the same species, and we can't even get along. <laughs> amazing. And as a result of this, we have this huge variety of fruits, nuts, and vegetables. And for instance, a couple of months ago, the biggest pollination event in the world happened, which is almond pollination in California. Uh, California produces about 82% uh, of the world's almonds, and they have to have this insect, the honeybee, takes pollen from one almond flower to another so that you can have an almond uh, and uh, we can benefit from the nutrition in that almond. But then just think of, of watermelons. So let's say a seeded watermelon's got 500 seeds in it. Each one of those seeds has to have a pollen grain associated with that seed. Uh, or um, that seed isn't formed, and if the seed isn't formed, that watermelon is under no obligation to build a watermelon in that spot. So complete pollination is necessary because you don't want funky shaped watermelons. You don't see a watermelon 
that's flat on one side, or cucumbers, or squash. You have to have complete pollination. And then, you know, we talk about the, you know, apples and all these other things that require pollination. But then, you know, look at the look at the lettuce and look at the kale and and spinach and what have you there. Um, you know, everybody thinks, well, honeybees aren't involved in that. Well, yeah, they are because somebody has to have those seeds to plant to grow that. And those seeds are produced by a flower being pollinated by a honeybee to produce a lettuce seed or a spinach seed that in turn is harvested and sold to a grower so that they can grow more of it. So we're tightly tied to this and that's us. And then you look at all these other things that are produced that uh, feed chickens and cows and pigs and you know soy in particular because honeybees do pollinate soy. And then, you know, to be perfectly truthful and honest and, and not so selfish, think of honeybees when they're looking for flowers in that two, two and a half mile radius of their colony. Um, you know, they're getting out into the environment. They're getting out into the fields. They're getting out into the roadsides, into the woods, into those trees and pollinating. So they have that connection to our environment, to our environment, allow it to be healthy and sustainable. So um, it's just not one thing that uh, honeybees and other pollinators, of course, are, are uh, uh, important for. Um, so it's, it's, it's holistic in a way that most people don't think about. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned soybeans because I've read some research re recently that um, they did in Brazil. Obviously, it's pretty tough to do this kind of research because, like you mentioned, the the wide uh, area that they cover from a hive. But um, the research basically they did in Brazil, Brazil said they could be up to 18% uh, of an increase in soybean yield from having uh, honeybees, managed honeybees in the vicinity of the field. Um, it's pretty hard to, to isolate a two-and-a-half-mile area and, and keep all the bees out, obviously. Um, but uh, it's kind of interesting when you read that kind of research. You know, it's probably realistically maybe not a 20% increase, but they do have an impact there. No, they, they sure do. And, it, and, you know, for instance, almond pollination in, in California, there's about a million acres of almonds requiring two honeybee colonies per acre. So almond growers, you know, flood the area with uh, honeybee colonies. We only have about 2.5, 2.6 million colonies of honeybees in the U.S., but if you look at a million colonies and two per acre, that's 2 million colonies out of 2.5 million, let's say, in the U.S. So these bees are loaded on semis and driven across uh, the United States and from other places to that area. And to be able to pick up an insect nest and have it uh, readjust to time and temperature and location, and then go out and, and complete their relationship with uh, these flowering plants uh, is amazing. And then when you think about uh, you know trying to flood a soybean field or trying to flood uh, a watermelon field or an apple orchard, um, honeybees are super important. And they're super important not only for pollination, but because you can pick up their nest and move it, which you can't do with any other pollinating insect to any great degree. So Jerry, you mentioned millions of colonies. Uh, public perception is that bee, po uh, bee populations are declining rapidly. Uh, my question to you is, is, there, is this a true crisis? Um, and then I guess a second question to follow up with that, 
Um, how about managed honeybee colonies? Uh, are there less honeybees than there were a couple of decades ago? Or where are we at as far as population dynamics go? Yeah, no, and those are those are great questions. And, and like everything else, there's, there's a bigger story to be told uh, about this. Uh, honeybees um, certainly have pest predators and diseases over the last few decades that we hadn't had in the past. And so this is where this thing called colony collapse disorder came up. And in fact, colony collapse disorder was found on my watch while I was chief of the apiary section in, in Florida. And I remember sitting on my bedroom floor one night at 1030 talking to colleagues at uh, university and USDA and, and other places because we didn't know what was going on. Uh, the honeybees were not dead, like dead on the bottom, or have, they were just gone, like they'd been beamed up or, or something. Um, and so we didn't know what was going on. So we thought, well, we'll call it colony collapse disorder. We didn't know what it was. And we figured, like everything else in beekeeping, uh, we would identify something, we'll call it a disorder, and everybody will ignore it, and it'll be gone in, you know, a year. Uh, but it didn't happen. Uh, the media glommed onto it and, and people, and, and so there's a huge awareness out there about honeybees. Um, and yes, certainly some colonies have been lost uh, because of that, but uh, commercial beekeepers primarily um, know how to use honeybee biology uh, in order to replace losses. Um, Think of, think of this, uh, honeybee colonies can be artificially split. So if you have a live colony, you can divide it, if you will, and make two colonies out of it. Kind of like the paramecium in, in high school, the paramecium divides and you get two paramecium. Well, you can split a honeybee colony and make, and make two. So let's say that you have a thousand colonies, uh, 500 of them die, and you can use the other 500 to split and divide and make up your, your numbers losses. Uh, not that they're strong and healthy and meet uh, you know pollination uh, contract requirements or, or honey production requirements, but you can replace those losses. And what commercial beekeepers are doing, <clears throat> instead of just dividing at one moment in time, they're splitting and dividing their colonies all year long knowing that they're going to lose maybe 30, 40, 50 percent of their colonies, uh, building in excess, building in insurance, if you want, so that they can uh, meet uh, their uh, business and contract demands later on. So actually, we have uh, more honeybee colonies in the United States than we have had in, in uh, a couple decades because of this uh, uh, dividing and splitting building an insurance. So does that mean that honeybee crisis is over, that everything's under control? No, it's not. Because if you're a small business person and you're losing 30, 40, 50% of your inventory a year, that's not a good business model. Um, you, how long can you do that when you're on this tightrope all the time? Uh, and, and so um, honeybees, unfortunately or fortunately, when we're talking about uh, pollination, let's say for for uh, agricultural crops, honeybees and beekeepers are just thought of as an overhead. Uh, they uh, um, are no different than 
crop protection tools or irrigation or pruning or anything else. The honeybees are contracted for, uh, they show up for two or three weeks of the year, they do their pollination and then they move on. And beekeepers, commercial beekeepers are so good that these bees show up the next year and the next year. Not that this is efficient or not that it is the best way to do it, but that is how beekeepers are surviving as small business people and, and filling in the gaps. Yeah, that's, um, it's really interesting. There, this is a highly managed species, just like, really like any other livestock, just about in agriculture. And um, it, the the dynamics between the the especially you think about the almond growers and and the beekeepers is really an interesting uh, relationship um and like you mentioned um we're losing you know they're able to manage the losses but we're losing a lot of hives and um you know if you look on if you read on social media there's a lot of information out there about why that's happening why why we're losing some of the hives um you know some of it's accurate probably a lot of the times it's probably not um We'd like to talk to, about a couple of the, the modern ag practices and their impact and then um, get your opinion on what's really um, the biggest, you know, of all the, all the things that impact honeybee health, what is the biggest impact. So um, we'd like to talk a little bit about GMOs. That's a hot button issue with a lot of people. Um, there are reports in some circles that say they're harmful to pollinators. Um, can you talk a little bit about the impact or lack of impact or, you know, however you see it of GMOs on honeybees? Yeah, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to put that off to the side for a minute because I want, you know, I have a passion for the industry. I've been in the industry for a long time and, and certainly don't want to um, look like that I'm balancing on one side or the other. I want to share um, information and data uh, that is truthful and honest. And, and the three words I want you to remember are Varroa, Varroa, Varroa. Uh, varroa destructor mites are an introduced invasive parasite that came from Asia uh, on our honeybees. And that is the biggest health issue for honeybees and, and control of that. We don't have control mechanisms that are uh, efficient to control this parasite. If you make a fist, make a fist and put it someplace on you. Proportionally, this is how large this varroa mite is on a honeybee's body. Um, uh, eating uh, its fat bodies, eating its tissue, uh, vectoring viruses, uh, causing immunosuppression so benign and latent viruses can grow, can grow. And, uh, uh, and beekeepers, uh, the only thing beekeepers have been given are pesticides. So beekeepers, me, a beekeeper, has to put pesticides in a beehive to kill a little bug on a big bug. And you have a lot of collateral damage there. Uh, what the people don't recognize or choose to ignore is that basically the beekeeping industry uh, has been, I don't want to say ignored, but I will say ignored because of uh, beekeepers' ability to fill in the gaps on, on pollination 
Uh, there really hasn't been the resources given to the beekeeping industry uh, to help control this parasite on honeybees. And as a result, you have uh, all sorts of uh, uh, damage being done. If there was a, a tick on a cow, uh, a black Angus, and it, it uh, uh, affected the meat production uh, for the uh, quarter pounders at McDonald's, um, something would be done. The government, the USDA, would step in, universities would step in, and solve the problem. The only thing the beekeeping industry has been given are smiles and pats on the back and here's the once money, basically. Uh, and as a result, uh, uh, we're still talking about the same problem 30 years later, uh, even though a third of our food comes from uh, the activity of this bee and its, its management. So let me step off my soapbox for just a second and say that GMOs, uh, the only GMOs that I'm really uh, aware of are, are, are BT on corn and, and maybe some RNAi. Uh, these, uh, BT is a bacillus urgensis. It's uh, targeted for corn rootworms and earworms, which are moths, uh, basically. It uh, has nothing to do with any other insects or butterflies or anything else too much. Um, and so it doesn't affect honeybees. Plus, corn is wind pollinated, so bees hardly ever visit corn. Why would you visit corn unless you were starving to death? Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think these GMOs and, and that issue is, is minor for the health of not only managed honeybees, but other pollinators just because of the relationship between these pollinators uh, and uh, the food resource that these, these plants represent. So, Jerry, to dovetail with that question, uh, my background's in entomology. A lot of the, yeah, an ag practice that gets a lot of conversation um, around my circles is the use of neonicotinoid insecti insecticides. Uh, so, in your opinion, what's the real risk to honeybees from the use of crop protection products such as neonics? Um, you know, neonics uh, are widely, widely used, and the reason they're widely, widely used is that they're a great pesticide. They kill a lot of stuff, and they have low mammalian toxicity. That means they don't hurt you or I um, the way some of the older pesticides did. I remember I, when I was a boy, I remember fields being sprayed with, golly, DDT and organophosphates and everything <laughs> else. Uh, and killing not only every bug, every good bug, every bad bug, but raccoons and possums and everything else. Um, and so we have found out how to uh, make some other chemicals that kill bad bugs uh, as well uh, and uh, not hurt uh, humans or livestock or pets or, or what have you. But Certainly, they are still pesticides, and if they're misused or applied at the wrong time, uh, they can have issues if there's honeybees next to the crop. Now, why a beekeeper would place their colonies next to uh, a crop that might uh, receive those chemicals, I have no idea because uh, the food issues uh, are, are very minor there. Remember that 
beekeeper, the largest beekeeper in the United States has 100,000 colonies. Can you imagine 100,000 wow. of those stacks of boxes? And there's lots with 10 and 15 and, and 8. And beekeepers, you can't, we, this is kind of interesting too. Um, we know how to feed every animal in the St. Louis Zoo, right? We know how to feed them a, a diet that uh, allows them to stay healthy and healthy enough that they want to reproduce. We don't have a supplemental, complete, nutritionally complete supplemental diet for honeybees. Um, and so beekeepers, if they need food issues, they have to place their bees in all sorts of crazy places. Where do you put 100,000 colonies? You can't put them in one place because there's not enough flowers. But they have to spread them out. And maybe you have to spread them out next to production agriculture because that's the flat place that you can drive a semi up and unload these colonies of bees. So it's, it's an awkward situation. The bees are so, so important. But there are no supplemental diets. There are no locations where you can put bees like a feedlot for cows and feed them and keep them away from potentially uh, bad locations, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, production agriculture or it's next to the Kemlon factory or whatever. Um, and so one of the problems I think we have in the beekeeping industry is is trust within the agricultural industry and others because trust only comes when you have things in common. Uh, and so if beekeepers and beekeeping is not looked on as a significant part of agriculture, that bees only show up at a certain time of the year and I produce a crop and I take the check to the bank and I pay them something to, to do it, um, it's got to be more than that got to be appreciation it's got to be respect and it's got to be trust and i don't know that we've reached that that level yet yeah that that really goes for a lot of uh topics i mean we we need trust between one another and um just especially in this area with with the beekeepers and with the farmers um it's it's critical that they understand you know, it's kind of like you talked about that relationship between the flowers and the bees. They kind of depend on each other. In a lot of cases, um, it's like that in agriculture too, with with the beekeepers and the and the and the uh, crop growers. Um, I, I don't know if you want to if you want to get into this at all, but you know, obviously, as you referenced, a lot of insecticides can be toxic to bees. I mean, they clearly, you know, they're they're made to kill insects, and bees are insects, and so. Um, you know, at a high level exposure for sure, you know, directly feeding them or whatever, they're, they're clearly toxic. And, and there's a lot of research done or some research done at the university level and at, in other circles. Um, is, there, is there a difference between um, the exposure in a research setting in, in a lab or what the bees might actually encounter in the field as long as um, label directions are followed and things like that? And if, if that research exists, what does it indicate or what, what does the research say? Yeah, and, and certainly there's research and there's data and you can cherry pick. You know, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> um, I have not seen any data that shows that at field relevant doses, what the farmer is using in the field, uh, unless 
they're they're not following label directions and application times and what have you uh, has much effect on managed honeybees um, at all. Um, certainly, it can be misused, and if the, the farmer isn't uh, doing his or her her due diligence, uh, yes, they can have a negative effect uh, on on honeybees. And that's where this trust between agriculture and, and communication goes back and forth. And um, you know, there's there's certainly a, a lot of acres and a lot of potential because beekeepers don't have a place that they can put their bees many times. And we've had this huge growth in hobby backyard beekeepers, which is tremendous uh, because of the awareness uh, that started because of CCD. And you know, and I'm an older guy. Uh, and it's kind of fun to, to see the growth in the industry from very small numbers of hobby beekeepers to tens of thousands. And, and most of them, you know, are my age. The kids are grown. They sold the SUV and they read the Mother Earth News in 1975. And they want to sell, uh, save the world. Uh, and honeybees are it. And then, uh, you know, they, they don't treat for this varroa mite we talked about. And then they live in suburbia. Uh, and then point the finger at production agriculture. And um, there are about 40 million, 40 million acres of suburban lawns in the United States, taking approximately 80 million pounds of chemicals and 10,000 gallons of water above and beyond rainfall to keep those lawns looking like the 18th hole at Augusta. And I don't think that most people uh, are aware or think about that at all. 80 million pounds of chemicals from the lawn care. Well, for instance, I was just speaking up at the Illinois State Beekeepers Association uh, meeting up in northern Illinois. And uh, I'm an early guy. And so early in the morning, I was at the hotel and thought I'd take a walk before I went over to the meeting. So I took a walk in the suburbia behind where the hotel was and lovely area beautiful homes beautiful yards and i went past one home that had that sign in the yard uh this yard's been applied with some stuff and don't walk on it and if you have any questions call this number and you know i just had to shake my head that if you have to put a warning sign in a yard in suburbia uh because there's toxic chemicals that could hurt you or your dog or the squirrel that's wrong. I'm just, I'm sorry. That's wrong. Um, and just think if we could convert 40 million acres, let's think if we could convert 2%, maybe 3%, 4 5% of 40 million acres into pollinator friendly habitat, not only for honeybees, but for native bees and perhaps uh, butterflies and, and what have you. And, it, and, you know, I was, I was speaking at Aspen Ideas Festival. Best, and uh, I made this statement and uh, had this young couple come up, you know, Aspen, uh, people make a lot more money than I do, had this young couple come up to me and say, uh, just heard your talk, it was great, and we just called our landscaper to come and pull up our front yard and plant pollinator stuff. And I thought, golly, first, somebody actually listened to me, and then number two is, um, that's great, but maybe you don't have to do that, or maybe... You know, uh, you know, rules and regulations in uh, suburbia and the gated community say you can't do that. But 
maybe you can do it those those strips up inside the, the driveway or that spot in the backyard or around the house you can plant stuff that will help honeybees and pollinators and monarchs and and everything else and i don't think that we're thinking this through enough we want to point fingers at each other uh too much certainly finger pointing is good but when you point your finger at somebody visualize that because you got three fingers pointing back at you don't you yeah. yeah that's that's i mean it comes back to exactly what you've talked about communication and and if we can get an open dialogue between suburbia and farmers if 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 suburbia could really understand what challenges growers face and and the beekeepers and you know there's a lot of people that can come to the table in this conversation that could really um, stand, everybody has a lot to gain, really. So. Yeah, and we eat tremendously well in this country. Um, for low prices, if you guys have traveled in other places in Europe, <coughs> um, food prices are much higher, selection is less. Uh, we are so, so blessed uh, to have this bounty, and uh, we, I think, are, are pretty um complacent and perhaps arbitrary uh in that awareness and, and gratitude for where it comes from and yes can it be better yes it can be better uh and the only way it's going to be better is if we actually there again uh find uh, value uh in each other's activities so that uh, we can go down the same path together so jerry you you uh you talked earlier obviously about the biggest uh, threat to bees and to get back to that just a little bit and give you a little bit um opportunity to to speak to that a little bit more so um you talked about the chemical uh the basically the pesticides that we're trying to use to kill a bug on another bug um how about how about mite resistance and breeding for mite resistance is that is that going on and and how successful are those efforts yeah, and so, you know, anytime you have a new parasite or disease, and we've experienced that not only in, on row crops, but in livestock production, whenever you have a, a new parasite uh, be introduced, uh, what that parasite always does is overwhelm the organism and, and kill it until you can figure out how to, how to control it. And the same thing has happened with honeybees on this Asian parasite, uh, the Varroa destructor mite. Um, and the only thing we've had are, are chemicals to control it, to keep the industry alive. If, if we didn't have those varroa sides, um, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now because we would have to access uh, most of our pollinator dependent foods from other countries. And, and do we really want to do that knowing how much other countries love us? I don't think we want to do that. I think we want to, uh, maintain our production ourselves. And so, uh, there are a variety of, of different ways, uh, IPM techniques, integrated management procedures, practices. Um, and one of them that has been tried is, is um, breeding honeybees that uh, have some type of resistance, hygienic resistance, grooming behavior, uh, something to uh, uh, re remove uh, X number of, of mites from the population uh and uh and stop uh, it from or slow it from overwhelming the population and it's super hard 
super hard to do. Um, you know, when you breed for one trait, that means that uh, you are ignoring some other traits or other traits step in. Honeybees, um, honeybees are not like, you know, they're again, that black Angus in the field. Uh, that black Angus in the field, you know who its dad is, you know who its mom is, they're registered, they have all this genetic uh, uh, pathways and traceabilities and, and everything else. When a virgin honeybee goes out to mate, um, she flies out and mates in the air in an, an area called a drone congregation area. Uh, drones are the males. Uh, she flies through this drone congregation area and drones will mate with her as she flies through. And, and the whole mating scheme um, requires about 20 drones for her to be fully mated. And she stores that sperm in her body uh, called the spermatheca. It's kind of like a round ball and, and, and the sperm is stored kind of in layers that she makes with these drones in this spermatheca. Uh, and then she goes back to the colony and stays there the rest of her life and lays eggs. Um, drones, I mean, honeybees are not going for the genetic home run. They're going for the averages. That's why honeybees can live basically from pole to pole. And they do that by mating with a variety of different drones that take, uh, that exhibit different genetic traits. So say one drone, uh, genes produce offspring that, uh, are sensitive to a bacterial disease. Um, well, um, you know, that's not a good thing, but that drone sperm will be used up and then another drone sperm will be used as the sperm is used in the spermatheca in layers. And maybe they will have resistance. And so because of this genetic diversity, uh, honeybees uh, uh, can live and be successful most of the time. You can breed honeybees that have some level of resistance to varroa because of grooming behavior or what have you, but maintaining that trait uh, is difficult because of this open air mating outside the colony. Uh, drone congregation areas attract drones from uh, different colonies um, within probably a three to five mile radius. And so this is where you get this mixture of drones because the, the queen doesn't mate, want to mate with the drones uh, from her own colony because then you get inbreeding and then you get some other bad things going on. So how do you find isolated mating areas? How do you find that isolated island? How do you, uh, you can't do it. And so you can uh, produce um, queens that have some degree of varroa resistance, but you can't maintain that trait in the industry uh, because of this open mating process that continues. And how do you provide 2.5 million queens uh, a year so that all colonies are resistant to varroa mites uh, to some level in the United States, and we just haven't figured out how to do it. Yeah, that's a <laughs> sounds like a, a really uphill battle. Obviously, yeah. Um, the, it, to me, this is fascinating stuff. I mean, the biology of the bees, and you know, like we talked about at the beginning, the more you learn, really, the more there is to learn. Which I suppose that applies to any topic. Um, 
to wrap up our podcast, we always like to ask our interviewees, our experts, to kind of vision cast the future of agriculture. And with uh, honeybees being such a vital, important part of ag and ultimately the, the food that consumers see at the supermarket, uh, in your opinion, Jerry, is there any uh, upcoming technology or anything with uh, bee production that will be game-changing in a, in a five to ten year time frame? No, I've, you know, I've been asked this question for the last 30 years, and certainly some money has been uh, uh, allotted to the industry because of colony collapse disorder and these questions. Um, but I think it's all just been, um, yeah, glad money, lunch money, uh, whatever you want. I don't know that um, there has been the focus uh, to actually getting industry together, government together, and saying we are going to solve this problem. There again, if uh, there was 30, 40, 50 percent of all the chickens dying in the United States uh, every year, um, you know, you would have people stumbling over themselves to fix this problem. Or if it was pigs or, or what have you, uh, honeybees, because of all that we've talked about over this last hour, um, have this innate ability to survive with the help of beekeeper managers. Um, basically, everybody says, who cares? And so when bees still continue to die a little bit, uh, let's point our finger at somebody else because we don't know how to solve the problem ourselves, so let's blame somebody else. Uh, is there any new technology on the horizon? There's always, you know, a little bit here. There's always research being done you know uh project apis mellifera gives out uh, money costco helps the honeybee health coalition helps uh you know there's some big ag but uh, nobody is actually uh all in the game uh they're just all buying time and i i think that uh, if there was a real concerted effort uh and and maybe and, and most big companies don't want to do this because ultimately they're not going to make any money it's not like selling corn seed or something else they're not going to make any a whole lot of money if they solve the problem uh so they ignore it and so that's that's big corporations and uh, don't cut that out okay <laughs> we really appreciate your time here today jerry um this has been a great conversation like i said it's really fascinating for me and um I think, yeah, I really appreciate your expertise and your, and your thoughts. Thanks for your time, Jerry. We appreciate it. And, uh, um, yeah, hope you have a good rest of your day. No, thank, thank you for reaching out guys. Uh, appreciate your kindness and, and your patience as I, I rattled on, but as you can see, um, I'm, I'm in the game and I, I love the game and, uh, thank you guys for being interested. And I hope some of your listeners are too, and you have a great day.